The Incomparable Number 196 May 2014 Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. And uh, we often talk about the Hugo Award sci-fi uh, novel nominees every year, and we will do that. But uh, we just couldn't help ourselves. There was a largely different group of novels that was nominated for the Nebula Awards, which come from the um, Science Fiction Writers of America. And is it of America or is it Association? Are they... Are they terrible and it's america anti-american is it america okay well it is all right we also established last year that locust or locust not not first off locusts <laughs> are not locusts they are not sort of mantis related things it's locusts and they're not from england they're from oakland apparently so i still think i still think they're from england i've <laughs> may be english but they live in oakland and they are not locust that's the anyway um, I don't even. Wow, that is that is. A, we are off the rails early. Anyway, uh, the point is that we read a lot of the Nebula nominees. Some some of us read all of them, I believe. And um, and because there were eight nominees, and because um, uh, not all of our regular panelists want to read that much because they're illiterate people, uh, largely. Dan Morin, we're talking about you. Uh, I've I've enlisted some um, stars from other science fiction related podcasts to come join us and read some of the Nebula nominees with us. And this is very exciting. This is like a crossover episode, like when when like uh, Spider Man meets the Avengers. It's that kind of thing. Um, and and Daredevil's in there too. And Scott, you're Daredevil. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Scott McNulty is here. Scott and I read everything. Uh, and Scott literally reads every book that's published. Hi, Scott. Hello. It's good to have you here. It's good. To, I, I don't. There are a lot of new people on this podcast. Are you Are you feeling comfortable? or Are you uncomfortable? I am slightly uncomfortable. All right. All right. Well, well, well. but that's that's normal though. So. <laughs> All right. So you're 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 your usual then. Great. Exactly. All right. We have three excellent uh, special guest stars. A longtime listener since since like episode eight at least. Uh, Fred Kish. I've. I, I, I've mispronounced your name in the past, but I hope I got it right this time. You, you got it right. We can hear you on SF Signal and the uh, Three Horsemen, which is like a spinoff of SF Signal, right? Well, that was when uh, the host of SF Signal, Patrick Hester, was working like 90 hours a week. We tried to do something to fill in, and it's become an entity of its own. I love spinoff podcasts. I've got, we've got like 10 of them now. I know it's out of control, but yeah, it's great. Podcasts can do that. They can spin things off. It's good. Uh, also, Paul Weimer is here. You may know him from the excellent Hugo-nominated Skiffy and Fanty podcast and SF Signal both. Hello. Hello. My name is Paul Weimer. I also have been known to pop up on other things. I've been on The Three Horsemen. I've been on SSF Audio a couple times, and I get mentioned on other podcasts. You make it around. Well, now you can add another one to your I, to your list. <laughs> I can add another. I can add another ticky box to the list. Yes, that's right. You're on lots of podcasts. You may know him from podcasting. And Sean Duke, who uh, is uh, one of the prime movers behind the Skiffy and Fanty podcast, which got nominated for a Hugo. And are you going to London for Worldcon? Have you have you made it across the finish line with your uh, with your funding? Uh, uh, well, I am now uh, just trying to raise what I'm calling food related funds. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you'll be there, but we don't know if you're going to eat. Yeah, what I eat really depends on on how many donations I get before the end of the month. Uh, so it could be that I get to eat food that will not kill me, or it could be that uh, I'm eating whatever I find. Burger King. Well, no, Burger King in England is higher quality food than it is in the U.S. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they're made out of like I don't know. It's weird. Well, it's because the royalty, the king. You know, they they respect the king in in England. Burger King here. We it would have to be like Burger. I don't know what Burger President. No, that, they wouldn't <laughs> respect. They don't that. have a king though. They no, they don't. But they, you know, the whole royal. They will. They have. You know. Eh, maybe. Anyway, the topic is hamburgers. <laughs> Wait a and second. Royalty. Uh, and royalty. <laughs> sure. So we should talk. So there, there were um, eight novels nominated for the Nebula Award. Uh, there was a winner. I guess we should. I. I it's public knowledge. You, you, Ancillary Justice by Anne Leckie was the winner. I, I should also point out that we've talked about two of these novels on previous episodes of The Incomparable. We talked about Ancillary Justice, and we talked about The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. We did an episode about that. Um, the other nominees are, well, we'll just, we'll take them. I think we'll take them in turn and talk about what everybody thought of them. I think that that might be the way, and we'll try to keep the spoilers light so that you can listen if you're curious and haven't read these novels, because chances are you probably haven't read all eight, unless you're a crazy person like Scott. Let's start by Ancillary Justice. Uh, you know, Ancillary has won every, Justice has won everything. All the awards it has been up for, I think it's won, uh, more or less. And it's the, Anne Leckie's first novel, and it's a remarkable first novel. We loved it when we, when we talked about it in a previous episode. Scott said, I think last year he said it was the best book he read last year, right? Uh, it is true. And uh, this is going to be great because uh, there was a book that you said was the best book you'd read so far this year in a few episodes ago, and it's also nominated for the Nebulous. It's very exciting. So I'm wondering, for, for Fred, Paul, and Sean, um, have you guys all read Ancillary Justice, and, and what did you think of it? I'll go first. Uh, um, yeah. Sean and I did did read it in, in preparation for our own uh, interview with Ann Leckie. I, Sean and I, I think I can speak for Sean, and like, we were blown away by it. We got to read it relatively early in its cycle and get to be part of... Uh, building its momentum towards its apparent apparent uh, acquisition of every award it's being nominated for. I I really liked I really liked the writing. I really liked the ideas she threw out. I I was not thrown off by it and this is but the fourth podcast I've talked about it now at this yeah. point. <laughs> Counting the three horsemen. So yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big fan of uh Lecky's work here. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I, w- I would agree. Uh, it's currently the the novel that is very likely to get my vote for the Hugo, since it's also up for that award. Uh, and I, when we read it and we talked to uh, Anne Leckie about it, I mean, it, it was one of those books where we'd gotten a slew of novels that are very nostalgia-oriented, and then we got this one that was not. And it was just doing all these very interesting, different things with, for example, I mean, the very first chapter, I'm not spoiling anything, it completely disrupts our conceptions of gender. Right. And pronouns. And I love that. I love that moment where I'm like, what is going on? And then once I figure out what's going on, I go, oh, that's really clever. It's really a useful way. And I love the world building. It also deals with colonialism, which is like my academic interest. So I, I kind of latched onto that like a leech. It was good. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, I think it's it's a really solid novel. It's not a perfect novel, but it's also a first novel. And it's this good for a first novel is really quite impressive. Yeah, that's the thing. It's the first novel. I read it and I just thought, how can this be? I mean, I imagine she's written a lot uh, of things that she, you know, she never got published or never thought were good enough. But, I mean, good God, it is so accomplished for a first novel. It's amazing. Yeah. Fred, what do you think? I enjoyed it as well. And I experienced it both as an ebook and an audio book. And one thing that I pointed out earlier on another podcast that Paul was on. <laughs> <laughs> was that the experience of listening to it 
gave me a different perspective of the characters than the experience of reading it. So for anybody who's a member of uh, Audible or another service, I would recommend giving it a listen because the uh, narrator's quite good and it was an interesting different experience. Yeah, one of the things I'm, we, I, I'm going to do my footnote now. Episode uh, 179 of The Incomparable, we talked about it, along with uh, um, The Lies of Loch Lamora by Scott Lynch. Uh, the, the, um, it, it is a space opera. It is, it's got a lot of big ideas. It's got some very interesting things about, about uh, colonialism. I like how there's this kind of question when, when you're given late in, late in the book this decision between sort of a choice between two sides in this uh, stellar empire. Um, it's not a good guys and the bad guys. It's sort of like, you know, one set of guys and another set of really, you know, bad guys, but the other guys aren't particularly good. Um, the gender issues are off also very interesting as, as, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and the, the, I, I will say it reminded me, and I don't know why I keep saying this, but it, it reminded me sort of of the feeling I got when I read *The Left Hand of Darkness* by Ursula Le Guin. It was, it was, mm. it, 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 like the 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 cold planet it starts on reminded me of Le Guin and and *Left Hand of Darkness* and the all of the kind of we're going to question your issues about who these people are and about gender and about their and, and about identity. Uh, it, it brought that back. It was the, it was, that was the book that it, it reminded me the most of. I mean, the three authors I was most reminded of were, were Le Guin, but also John Varley, especially things like the Ophiuchi hotline, which he wrote in the late seventies. Mm-hmm. And then, um, Ian Banks, any number of the, uh, culture books. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very, very much like Banks. Yeah. Yep, if you like any of those authors, I would recommend this one highly. So I got I got to assume that even though Anne Leckie is a is a first time novelist, that you know, I've got to assume she's the favorite for the Hugo at this point, shouldn't I? Just because she's won everything else, or or is the the presence of the Wheel of Time on the Hugo ballot a looming <laughs> presence? Will the Wheel of Time knock out the sad puppies and vice versa? Hmm, that's that's a possibility. And, and orbit not putting stuff into the packet. It, it, this I don't know what to read for this Hugo Ballas Forbes. Who's going to win? There's so much politics and cross purposes going on. I have, I don't know what's going to rise to the top. Anything could happen. It would look like in a normal. Uh, if you're looking at normal momentum, it would look like Ancillary Justice had to be the favorite just because it has won all of these other major awards. But we, we, who knows? I think Ancillary Justice is is the favorite in in terms of what is there on the ballot. But the voting process is going to be the thing that's going to determine what happens because it could be that the as Fred was pointing out, this sad puppy ballot could be the thing that like they just mobilize really efficiently and somehow get enough votes in. Um, or it could be the same thing for Wheel of Time if the the people who voted that in to be on the ballot in the first place, if they get enough people to vote for that. Um, or it could be the Orbit thing could knock some of them out. Um, I, I suspect Ancillary Justice is still going to take it, and I'd be very surprised if it didn't because I don't think Wheel of Time is going to uh, – nobody's going to read the whole darn thing. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to make it. No. I'm sorry. It's like we have to vote. And when do we have to vote? Like in two months? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, not going to happen. <laughs> no way. <laughs> but thumbs up from everybody here for Ancillary Justice. I mean, it's really good. And if you like space opera and if you like Ian Banks and if you like The Left Hand of Darkness, or, I mean, there's so many different things. Like, if you like, do you like books that are that are really good? Because Ancillary Justice is really good. Absolutely. All right. Everybody agree. Scott, anything to say? You already endorsed this like 10 times on this podcast. 
I did. I said all I need to say about Slayer right. Justice. It's good. Good book. Uh, let's move on to another nominee. Um, we are all completely beside ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. Um, this is a book. Again, I don't want to spoil too much. It, it, it's um, Karen Joy Fowler is a science fiction writer. Um, I would argue that this is not in any way a science fiction book, though. This is the book that made me think. Let me look at the rules of the nebulas. <laughs> Uh, to which I found out that though the Nebula is awarded to the year's best science fiction or fantasy book, they do not define what science fiction or fantasy is. So, why not? There's there is science in it. There is science. It is a book. It is a book of fiction that features science. So, it is sure. science fiction. Sure. And it's a, a a a woman narrates this story of her life and her upbringing, and she's being raised. In, a, in an environment where her upbringing is essentially part of a scientific experiment and it has an impact on her life and her siblings and her family. And, um, uh, you know, I thought this was beautiful. I loved it. Um, I recommended it to my wife and then she read it. I thought, it, you know, it's sad and happy and funny and sad again. Um, but it's not. But it's not science fiction. So if I were if I were a Nebula voter, or if it had made it for the Hugos, I I don't think I would have ranked it particularly highly. Even though I I I really liked it. I liked it. Um, it was one of the the it, certainly in the top half of the of of my enjoyment of the Nebula nominees that I read. But um, I I am kind of stopped by the fact that you know although it's a I think a good novel and I liked it a lot. It's also not science fiction. Well, is it speculative fiction? Does it have, I mean, you said that it has scientific elements, so... I don't, it seems like it could be real, but it's not. Right, so it's hard to talk about this book without spoiling a very a central point of it. <laughs> Although the cover art sort of spoils it, but... It, it does, but it's, it's... Yeah, so, I mean... There are, there are primate... I mean, there are primate experiments in the book, and, and, and there's a question of sort of like these... The, the, how the primates are... Um, okay, I'm going to fire off a really quiet spoiler horn here, and then uh, you can come back in like two minutes, and we'll we'll probably be done. She's raised with a chimpanzee um, as her sister, and that has a huge impact on her life, the narrator's life, and her brother's life, and her parents' life, and uh, you know, and so, th- but that I think those sorts of experiments actually happened. So it seems fictional, but it, it doesn't seem outside the realm of something that just actually happened in history. So I'm not quite sure it, it's any, it's much more speculative than any other kind of fiction. Well, this could be, I mean, it, it sounds like a slightly more conventional book than what Roger McBride Allen did once where he had Neanderthals, but it sounds like a better version than what uh, a certain Michael Crichton did once with Congo. Well, that's a good example. Yeah. I was thinking of that, Fred. Yeah. Those are all. This book is to compare the, this book to those books in like trying to make it science fiction. If you read the book, you you, it it is not science fiction in any way, shape, or mean. Uh, I mean, it's a really good book. I liked it. Uh, she plays. She does a lot of things with because the the central character of the book has this traumatic experience that kind of really reverberates across her life and she questions her own memories and you don't know if you can rely on what she's telling you and she has this kind of weird relationship with her brother and her parents and you know she grew up with a chimpanzee and it's 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 a wonderful book but it's not science fiction um 
And it's not like, you know, it isn't like the Congo uh, or uh, reanimated Neanderthals. <laughs> um, it's like it's like all stuff that basically has has happened uh, in some form, so it's remixing kind of historical events. I don't know. They're, 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 it's a good question. What do we what do we define science fiction as? Regardless of whether it's science fiction or not, those um, I, I don't know which of you guys uh, read it, but uh, uh, speak up and what did you think of it as a, as a novel? Because I really did enjoy it. I just I I just am, was a little baffled about why it was on the list. I, I I didn't read it, but listening to the discussion made me think of uh, you know not that it's directly related, but the the William Gibson books that came later. In his life, the weird ones with the spook like, country pattern recognition. Yeah, those books, uh, which in some cases are are so like are present that it's kind of hard to disentangle them as speculative. Um, so that in any case, that that's all the last thing I had to say on that because this is one of the ones I was not able to get to. <laughs> yeah, I think I, even the Gibson and I love I love those the that recent the the recent trilogy from Gibson, but even there, I feel like he's he's pushing it it's like like max headroom it's 20 minutes into the future it's like there's just something in it that is not you know like that like in the first one there's the 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 footage and there uh the people putting together the footage in russia somewhere and all of that and it's it's almost uh today but it's not quite and this feels completely like yeah this all could have happened and it, it seems very mainstream novel to me but it, it's excellent you, you know many people that were were raised by chimps well, not many, but I, I, I believe it's ha- <laughs> I believe many. it actually happened. Uh, I, I do recall uh, uh, a Radio Lab story where they were talking about a chimpanzee where they tried to raise the chimpanzee as human, and that worked for a while, and then things went horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, and that, and when I heard about this book, I read an excerpt of it, and I was like, this feels like a Radio Lab story, and didn't feel very SFL to me, and so I didn't go ahead and read it. Because I thought I, I think I know this story is what yeah. I was thinking at the time, and just put it off. I would recommend it to people. I think it's a, I think it's a very good book. But don't go in expecting that there's going to be the secret twist is that she was implanted with with primate DNA and is <laughs> I mean none of that is it's just a it's just like a a memoir of somebody who lived through a very strange childhood where um, her scientist parents. Um, made her childhood part of their experiment, and it had a deep impact on her and the rest of her family. Um, and as that, it's beautifully written. It really is. You know, Scott, would you agree? Just a really nice uh, book. He, I was about to say that it was beautifully written, so you, you took the words right out of my mouth. It, was, is, it is a fantastic book. If you only are interested in you know, sci-fi fantasy, you should probably skip this book. But uh, it is a great book. I enjoyed it very much. Yeah, I, I don't inflict many of the books that I read on my wife. And this one, I was like, you should read this. You should read this next. It's it's that good. And she did, and she liked it a lot. So, um, and and uh, that, that's, yeah. Okay, so We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. Highly recommended by me and Scott. Not science fiction, really, but uh, but she's a science fiction writer. The science fiction writers of America know her, and they nominated her book because it's good. And I, I can't blame them for that. I, it is It is a good book. And it has science in it. And it does have science, and it is fiction. Uh, let's move on to the ocean at the end of the lane. Much has been said about this. We did episode 155 of the incomparable about it. Neil Gaiman, um, shockingly not nominated for the Hugo. I nominated him, but I, nothing I nominate ever gets nominated. So, um, and, uh, so you can refer to that episode and, and Scott and I, or Scott wasn't on that episode. Scott, did you ever read this book? I, I, when you were doing that episode, I refused to read it, uh, but I have in fact read it. Oh, 
well, mostly because I I, uh, I I refuse to read it mostly because of unrelated things about uh, people who annoy me. But oh, fair uh, the book itself was delightful. <laughs> yeah, I, I I mean I think it was beautiful, um, really nice, enjoyable story. Uh, what did you guys think, Fred? Did you read this one? I in fact read it twice huh? uh, in December and January. I mean, if um, Stardust was his homage to Lord Dunsany, I thought this one was more like an homage to uh, M.R. James, if anybody's ever read him. Mm. Where you kind of have a pretty normal background with something not quite right going on at the edges, and the edges get closer and closer towards the center. I mean, it seems to be pretty autobiographical, except when it gets really strange, which is interesting to see what his... You know, what he worked into the story. Short, which I enjoy. I enjoy a short book rather than a big fat book every now and then. And uh, very economical. Yeah, I agree. It gets right to the point and scares the heck out of you in some points. Sean, do you read this one? Yeah, this is one actually I finished today. Uh, wow. And I, I would agree with Fred. One of the very first things I noticed about this book is I stopped and said to myself, this feels very autobiographical. Not knowing enough about gaming myself to actually like say that with any you know authority, but it it seemed like it was very much dealing with his own childhood, and then obviously as it goes on, it becomes increasingly strange or yeah. you know in this sort of game in way that things that are kind of dark and mysterious and, and like even even the the little family that, that's at the ocean at the end of the line, duh, uh, they even though they're kind of I guess the good guys, there's always this weird unsettled feeling about them throughout the whole thing um and that that never really goes away even in the final chapter i think that's very much stays there and i think that's something that's very familiar for game and fans and a lot of his work even stardust has a lot of that feeling uh i think throughout much of it and stardust happens to be my favorite game and novel so uh, but i like this one quite a bit uh i didn't think it was his best book but that's because Stardust remains my favorite, and that's for completely sentimental, silly reasons. So, yeah, yeah I really like American Gods, and I don't, I don't think I would put this over that. But I, I, I liked it a lot. And you're right; it feels the when you start it, you are wondering to yourself if you're reading a, a memoir, and you get the feeling that he must have poured some of his his childhood into this. The bit with the car actually happened to him and his family. Hmm. Really? I did. I think I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I, I, I read this. I read this too. I did. It did feel very much like he was pouring out some of his childhood into this novel. Felt like a a fairy tale version of events of his of his childhood. It it was. It, it feels like the anti-American gods. If you mentioned American mm-hmm. gods, as far as it's very spare, it's very short, it's very compact. I I devour. I devoured this quickly during my uh during my uh plane rides this last just last weekend so it just i just it just just flew right by in the middle middle of a plane and next thing i know it's it's gone it's over like whoa it 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 felt i i went through it i need to read it again like fred did maybe i can soak into it more maybe i read it almost too fast i didn't quite realize just how short and uh compact it really was but it's i i do think he's getting better as a writer i I, I, I've heard that we're still waiting for the perfect game and novel. I don't think this is it either, but I guess we I guess he keeps circling or triangulating, looking for his masterwork. If American Gods isn't it, I don't know what it will be. 
maybe there's some just a perfect gaming novel for everybody and he just keeps hitting near the bullseye i don't know i suspect that his his greatest work is going to be sandman yeah you know, regardless of what he what else he's doing that seems to be the work that everybody thinks is his greatest achievement although you know he 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 seems to not be satisfied with writing the same novel over and over again because american gods hits a spot in me that the graveyard book which i also really enjoyed uh, do, doesn't it hits a different spot and this book feels very different to me so even though they're all kind of gamey i do feel like he um is really reluctant to go just completely back and do another book like that one and you know let's let's do american gods again i feel like he he does want to push himself a little bit and maybe that's why um you know we're still wondering what the ultimate neil gaiman book is yeah american yeah. gods too electric boogaloo yeah <laughs> <laughs> well, like uh, Nancy Boys is sort of American Gods too, but it's not like American Gods really at all. No, very, very different. Um, I I did also like that this book did some interesting things with its horror elements. That it didn't stick with what could have been the simple choice, which is the supernatural horror, but it actually chose, I guess, what you'd say like a family horror. It's familial um, horror. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Exactly, uh, exactly. It. it does that really well. I mean, there's, and I'm not going to say what the scene is because we all know the scene mm-hmm. when boy and family and bad things. And that particular <laughs> moment, I mean, I wish he had dealt more with it later on, but there's a, it sort of is explained in the final chapter why it's not. Uh, but that moment was like, I had to stop for, and have like a break because I was like, what is going on right now? Because this is insane. And it's horrifying. That's even more horrifying than any of his supernatural creatures, I feel, is that moment. Well, you talk about um, – when we talk about this being autobiographical, um, I think it's telling in a way that the true horror in this story is horror of things that happen in the family, horror that tears the family apart, being betrayed or or thinking less of members of your family because of things that they did that are unfortunate and or terrible um fear of members of your family i think that i you know again not knowing neil gaiman's life and not trying to psychoanalyze him entirely through his work although it's so tempting it it, i i feel like that's really interesting that this comes from a personal place this isn't some crazy supernatural world inflicting horror on you it's it's terrible things happening to to or or caused by members of your family really hits closer to home i think and boy, yeah, you don't even need to say what scene it is. Anybody who's read that book knows exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. It, I don't know if anyone has read enough Gaiman to know whether this is the first time he's dealt with family-related abuse issues. That's I'm using that term like in the most vaguest sense, mm-hmm. so I don't give anything away. Because yeah. I don't recall if he has, but I haven't read everything by him. I haven't read everything by him either. I feel like he must have touched on these issues. I mean, there's some stuff in Sandman, even the stuff of Sandman that I've read that I feel is sort of like that too a little bit but this is it just it seems so personal and you're set up to feel it being personal from those first few chapters that seem autobiographical that um the whole i mean that's part of the trick too is that is that he makes the 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 whole betrayal all the terrible things that happen feel personal because it starts so personal yeah absolutely i totally agree yeah that's the more I talk about this book, the more I like it, <laughs> and the more unsettled I become because I start remembering things, the details. Mm-hmm. It's really, it's a really unsettling book. I really recommend that if you've never read a game and novel, try this one. It'll, it'll creep you out. Well, maybe not if you yeah. get creeped out too easy. <laughs> I think it's, I, but I think it's gentle in another way. I mean, some horrible things happen, and yet some of it I feel, I feel is, is kind of gentle and and 
uh, as Gaiman novels go. Also, there are cats. Yes, really yeah. awesome cats. If you like cats, they're they're cats. There's sad sad things about cats. Happy things about cats. Oh, yeah, good things about cats. Aww. We are being nebulous on this Nebula podcast. Yes, it's the Nebulous <laughs> Awards that we will win for <laughs> trying not to spoil everything that happens in all these novels. Um, okay, so everybody's gonna gonna give a pass to the ocean at the end of the lane. It sounds like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Uh, even Scott, who d- didn't want to read it. I didn't want to read it, but I did, and it was nice. Yeah, he's a good writer. I mean, divorced from his his PR and his wife's PR and all of that, um, he's a really good writer. He really is. It's true. All right, next. He's a on, nice guy too. Yeah, I follow him on Twitter, and it's one of those things that you shouldn't follow writers you really like on Twitter or get to know them too well because you worry that you'll discover that they're horrible people. But he does seem like an actually genuinely nice guy. Yeah. Um. Let's move on to Fire with Fire by Charles E. Gannon. Um, this is uh, – so I'm trying, I'm trying to keep the, the more military-themed stories uh, separate. This is, this is an interesting book because I felt like there were sort of a couple different books in here. This is sort of a book that starts out being a – there's like a guy on a – it's like a, there's like a guy – well, for – oh, my God. There's so much in here. There's like a guy on the moon – and he's and then he wakes up and he's on a spaceship and it's like 13 years later. He's an investigative reporter. Yeah, and it could be like you could say this is a spy novel. Yeah, except except there's a gear shift in the middle, right? Cuz I, I feel like well, there's a couple of gear shifts. Yeah, the first half of the novel I feel like is a a sort of like there's this guy and and some weird things happen and so he's sort of out of time uh, a little bit, but he's investigating something that's going on and 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 it, there's this sort of spy element of you know, I'm down on this planet and what's going on and they're trying to mislead me and maybe there are aliens down here, but we don't really know if there are aliens down here. I'm going to figure it out. And it's a little Indiana Jones-like. And I thought, all right, I get what this book is going to be. Um, and then like book and two, again. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then it's what would it what would it be like if you were negotiating with aliens about joining their Star Federation, <laughs> which is like, whoa, that's just a totally different book than the book that I expected. And uh, so, you know. It's it's a very interesting book. It's like several books in one. I mean, he he has co-written some stuff with uh, Steve White, set in the Starfire series, which is based on a a board game. Mm-hmm. He worked for Game Designers Workshop on Traveler in twenty three hundred A D, which was a role playing game in the eighties uh, and nineties. And this feels very much like twenty three hundred A D, including some of the same stars are used in the game and this book. So I was like, oh yeah. And uh, even a friend of mine is Tuckerized in this, which was really amusing. The uh, without saying any, the the ill-fated Lieutenant Weave upon a certain ship in the asteroid belt is a friend of mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. Now, as with so many Bane uh, co- books, the cover is kind of embarrassing. And I was like, "What is this book? It's like a guy in a little bubble ship." firing <laughs> at things and I covers, don't really I'm not quite sure what that cover is supposed to be uh, uh, in all fairness it's not the worst <laughs> <laughs> it's really not well, that's true. That's true. I mean it looks he looks kind of like a, a real person uh, he doesn't look like they use some sort of like weird 
CG clip art that they got for like a dollar. So you know, I'll give them props for. And, <laughs> and, and, no, and no scantily clad women like on the uh, Dominic Landry not books. Oh god, those are terrible. Yeah, it's not the not the best not the best cover, but you're yeah you're you're right. It's probably not the worst. Uh, so what did what did people? So like I said, it it, it struck me as being a very different kind of. Uh, there's a right hand turn in the middle of this book. I was like, wow, okay. And I liked both of the kinds of book it was. I liked the I liked the are, who are these aliens? There's a mystery there. There's an unresolved mystery which did kind of bug me. Where it's like, well, we'll you know you could probably figure this out. Read the next book and you'll find out more. But then the right hand turned to the other thing. I was like, all right, now we're in this sort of politics and negotiation and learning about who these aliens are and how they how they get along. And and I thought that or don't get along as the case may be. Um, isn't it nice to be invited to a club and then discover when when you're at your first meeting that everybody in the club hates each other? It's <laughs> essentially the the message here because the aliens are not all. It's not like. They're joining hands and singing Kumbaya. This is not that kind of. Uh, there's a lot of politics going on. So, what did everybody else? Uh, what did everybody else think? Scott, what did you think? Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. Uh, I did have trouble with the main character and with the the main female character's relationship. Uh, the main character is like Kane Reardon. He's good at everything. He's good at everything. That's right. He can solve all our problems because he's. He's good at everything. Don't don't question his methods. He's good. He's not good. He's not great at being a spy. He'll learn, but he's good at everything else. That's right. We can teach him how to spy, but we can't teach you how to think like him. Uh, so I thought that was a bit much. And then the, they have this uh, strong. Well, what I thought might be a strong female character who is uh, also adrift in time. And she is a decorated military officer. And she's supposed to be his bodyguard, but really her whole reason for being in the book is that so he'll fall in love with her uh and that they can then use their relationship as kind of a a pawn to make him continue to be a spy for this shadowy organization uh, which i thought was kind of a missed opportunity with a female character in this book yeah and there's a lot of uh i think descriptions of the descriptions of the women characters in the book are are sometimes a little unfortunate where i felt like it was very very kind of old school like um, she was a ravishing beauty, and let me describe her to you. And then he was, uh, you know, I, I, so I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And the main character definitely is like he's just Mr. Perfect. He's gr- he's literally he is good at everything. That's true. What did everybody else think who read this book? Fred, did you read this one? Uh, I'm almost done with it. All right. Well, and, I mean, you know, you can uh, pretend. far enough along. Yeah, I can pretend. Everybody like, dies like at the end. No, many many times in uh in this podcast, oh, people have pretended. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, I enjoyed the uh, the hard science fiction. Like this was the hard science fiction entry for this year's crop, and I think he's setting up for a long series. And I like some of the hints he's dropping, so I can see where it's going. His uh, military stuff is pretty authentic. Um, I had a James P. Hogan vibe at a couple of points. Yes, that's I actually. Uh, that I was going to say that, but I wasn't sure if anybody else would remember him. Uh, I grew up in. Uh, he lived in my town, my hometown, actually, ah. Sonora, California, for many. Before he got on the crazy train, or after he got on the crazy train? It, it was. I think he boarded the crazy train while he was in Sonora, but um, but the it, it had an inherit the stars kind of feel in a way because there's a there's an impossible when he goes down on the planet at the beginning, right? There's this sort of thing that is there presented that's like how is this is impossible? How could this be? 
Um, and that, that was a very much like inherit the stars where it's like, I'm just going to, I'm going to mention something that's impossible. And you guys are going to have to start thinking with me about how I might resolve this, this magic trick that I'm doing. But even part of that, I was kind of like, eh, I don't really buy it. But a certain other sequence shortly before that involving another anthropoid, um, all, all say (laughs) was, I actually thought was well-written was kind of neat. Where he's like putting together, oh, wait a minute, oh, no, that can't, oh, my goodness, yeah. you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I just so I thought that was a good part. Yeah, there's there's some really nice kind of almost first contact, first question mark, contact uh, stuff that is really creepy and interesting. And I love, I love, uh, Jack McDevitt is a, is a, I'm not sure I would say guilty because I, it's a pleasure to read. I love those books. They're a lot of fun. And I like the, we're on a planet and who knows if there are aliens here and maybe there's a dead, long dead civilization or maybe they're not completely dead. And, and the mystery and that, that kind of almost Indiana Jones kind of feeling of, of, uh, exploration. That's another good comparison for this one. Mm, that the first part of the book feels like that. And then it, then it goes in a very different direction. Who, uh, anybody else read this one? I just started it. I, I didn't really get that far into it. Now now I do want to uh, continue reading, especially since we've had the, these mild spoilers. I've, <laughs> I want to see where I want to see where it goes. But yeah, I, I don't have enough to really form a, a real right. impression of it yet. I, enough that I haven't put it down, which is strong. I unfortunately have not read it. Although uh, Fred was explaining to me earlier the, the similarities, which he's already noted. To Traveler, uh, which was a game that I bought a whole bunch of books of oh. when I was a teenager, but never got to play. <laughs> so uh, I I do now want to read it based on that that reference, uh, but it is one unfortunately I didn't get to. I, I'd say it's almost like the first half of the book is Jack McDevitt, and the second half is maybe David Brin kind of uplifty a little bit. Um, David Brin also not one of my favorite people in the world, but I love those uplift books and. Um, it, it, it feels like that in the sense that you, it's humanity discovering that the, the universe is a lot more complicated and that they may, they may not be, you know, they may be a, a pawn in someone else's game or they may not, and they have to find their own way. And there's a lot of that kind of vibe happening in the second half. And yeah, it was fun. I, I, uh, you know, if I, if I have any, any complaints beyond the, the main character being perfect and like Scott said, the, the, the woman character maybe not being, having enough of her own motivation for what she does, um and uh, it's the that there's stuff that is really teed up uh in terms of there are some plot revelations about what they find on that planet that are like literally just never dealt with again that that it's clear it's sort of like we'll you know that's another book next book we'll talk about why they found that thing on that planet later but it was fun it's just weird because it's two it's like two books in one it literally is if you if you if you're not really enjoying the first half just keep reading there's another book in there <laughs> I probably will not be reading the second book. Though. Yeah, well, unless it gets nominated for something, I I might I might depends. I'll I'll see what people think of it. But you know, it was it was uh, it was kind of fun. It was yeah, it was definitely not one of those that I picked up. And I, I and when when I was done, I I said, boy, I can't believe that book two is now yet. Um, but, I I believe yeah. the arc is out because I, I believe I have a copy. Oh. So. All right, <laughs> I will be reading. All it. right, so fire with fire. I thought it was yeah. I thought it was fine. I thought it was fun. Um, and if any of those uh, author names that we rattled off there uh, strikes you right, then you should give it a read. All right, let's move on. Did, did anybody but Scott read Hilled by Nicola Griffith? I did not. I did not. All right, Scott, I it's all it. on. It's all on you. I, <laughs> I bought. I actually bought it, and Scott said, "Don't read it." 
Don't read. Well, I mean, it's a really. Let me say this. It's it's another beautifully written book. It's incredibly long. Uh, it is not science fiction or fantasy in any shape or form, other than the fact that. So it's set in. Uh, uh, it's about Hildebrand, who is a, an actual historical figure. She was in. Uh, I forget the time frame. Uh, medieval times, I'm assuming. Uh, Isn't like the seven hundred seven hundred or something like something that. Something like that. Hildegard von Bingen? Uh, I believe No, so. St. Hilda of Whitby. Okay, okay, sorry. Yes, so she is uh, viewed as a seer by some the, uh, the king, and her mother is setting her up to, to be viewed as a seer, but she openly admits that she has no mystical power, she just observes things that other people, uh, things that other people don't notice, uh, and then draws logical conclusions based on the facts that she's seen around her. Uh, and then when she is proven right, people think that she has mystical abilities. But she does not have any mystical abilities. Um, and so it's the story of her maybe like 10 years of her life. Um, it's beautifully written. It is not fantasy. It is historical fiction. It's pretty much straight historical fiction. Um, so check it out if you want to read like an 800-page book about <laughs> Hild. <laughs> It was really good. All right. And on page 800, um, one of Connie Willis's uh, time-traveling people just steps through a door and goes, hey. Aha. No. <laughs> the end. Page. <laughs> Boom. Science fiction. Done. I was. This was the other one that made me, again, look at the rules of the nebulas <laughs> to figure out why. I mean, based on if you were just looking at how well it was written, it's clearly uh, – nominee worthy but once again it you're putting it into a science fiction and fantasy award and i don't know how it fits in the the genre oh. but it is a novel a genre novel if a genre author writes it and says it's genre even if it doesn't seem genre that seems to be the question of this nebula ballot yep. with, with 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 this and with the the fowler well, these these clearly the nominees the shortlist makers of the nebulas feel that if you're a if you're in the fraternity of being a science fiction writer, then and you write things that are good, you're eligible, and that's fine. I I get it. It's just if you're looking for for great new science fiction novels to read, um, you got to be careful because some of these are you know maybe it's a good trick. Like hey, read something outside of the genre. It, that's fine, but it, you know the, it, this is a historical fiction novel by somebody who's written science fiction in the past. Yeah, I and think probably. one of the short works was also one that people said, well, why is this science fiction? Maybe. Was it the Wakala Springs one? Yeah, they that, that. I mean, that was even run on Tor dot com, but it's marginal. Yeah, marginal. Right. Yeah, the ending of that particular novella is is I think close enough to being weird. <laughs> so, yeah, it, you get to the end and you go. There's like a weird moment where things sort of become like not quite real, and that's enough. But it's very, very low key. I mean, I got about halfway through it, and I'm like, I really like this, but w where's the sci-fi? <laughs> <laughs> so, because it seems like a nostalgia piece until you get to the end, and then it's still a nostalgia piece. But there's also this sort of weirdness, which I'm not going to ruin because it's actually a great novella. So, All right, okay, so that's Hild. Uh, Scott gives it a thumbs up for quality and points out that it is historical fiction. If you'd like to know about the 700s, check it out. And probably if. I was looking at just uh, if I was rating these books on just the craft of writing, uh, Hild should have won. Huh. But I, I don't. I don't think it. Based on the fact that this is a science fiction fantasy 
award. It should not win. Time to take a break for our sponsor. Our sponsor this week is really exciting. It is a new trade paperback of a comic called Umbral. It's by Anthony Johnston and Christopher Mitten. And Anthony Johnston is an incomparable listener in addition to being a comic book writer. And he writes a whole bunch of other stuff, does video game world building. Um, Umbral, I I read issue one when it first came out. I've just read uh, the trade paperback. Um, it's the first thing these two guys have created together since they created the epic Wasteland comic. Um, it is a high-concept story. It is sort of like Dark Crystal meets Saga. They didn't really design it that way, but that's sort of how it turned out. The art is really unique. It looks unlike anything that's out there today. Um, really interesting art, and the colors are all very cool. It's got a uh, really awesome female main character, and uh, it's good for, I would say, new um, and non-comics readers um, and the comic curious. This is, uh, you know, it, it sets you up with this sort of fantasy story that you're expecting. And then it goes, or at least I was expecting, and it goes in a different direction. And there are some surprises and things that you, uh, uh, if you go in expecting it to be yet another story that you've seen before, you will discover very rapidly that that is not what you're going to get. Lots of amazing world building goes on. Uh, anyway, the trade paperback version, uh, collecting the first few issues, has just come out. It's 168 pages long. Um, so it's a really large chunk of story. Uh, the same size as Saga Volume 1, actually, um, and only nine ninety nine. It even has a map in it. So you can, uh, you know, anybody who's read fantasy stuff loves you got to have a map. See what's happening in this um, this mythical land um, where this main character, uh, yeah, she discovers some pretty horrific uh, creatures that are doing horrible things. And then she has a very interesting adventure. It's dark and weird, and I liked it. Uh, and, and so there is a site that you can go to, go to theumbral.com, T-H-E-U-M-B-R-A-L, theumbral.com. And uh, the digital version of issue one of Umbral is free on Comixology and on Image Comics's own site. And then there is the trade paperback, $9.99 on sale now. It just went on sale earlier this week. You get the complete volume one, 168 pages, it's called Out of the Shadows, Umbral, U-M-B-R-A-L. Anthony Johnston, incomparable listener. Do him a favor. Check it out. If you're not sure, get the free issue one. And then if you liked it, buy the trade paperback. So thank you so much to Anthony and to Umbral for sponsoring this episode of The Incomparable. Let's talk about the red colon first light by Linda Nagata, which I believe is essentially a self-published novel that got nominated, which is pretty cool. She's written a number of novels in the past, but I think they're all, she's republished them all herself at this point. So this is also um, military-focused science fiction. It's interesting in that it mixes um, military characters and action with some pretty strong... Um, and interesting political sentiment in that, like the first thing in the first paragraph of the first chapter is about how, um, you know, listen, the world is run by the arms dealers and, you know, they're all just making profits for the defense industry. And we're just the, the, the soldiers here are just going to get chewed up by this machine that's doing this. And that's how the, that's how that it, it starts. 
Um, this is also a book that takes a right-hand turn because there, uh, we, we meet a group of soldiers out in Africa, uh, American soldiers that are patrolling in Africa. And, uh, and uh, it's a fascinating little bit, um, but we don't stay with them very long. And the, and, and the book goes in, a, in a, a different direction from there. And it becomes this interesting combination of um, military action and this recurring question for um about uh if there is an artificial intelligence emerging definitely a science fiction it's a near future with an artificial intelligence that may or may not be emerging in an interesting way um and the main character is a guy who was um given the choice of being in the army or going to jail uh because he was at a in a political protest and uh, so he decides to do this and he leaves his girlfriend behind and decides to stay out of jail and become a uh and become a soldier and ends up in another in another thing that happens here ends up being the recipient of some of the earliest um high technology for veterans to sort of like give them bionic parts and uh and so that's a thread that runs through this so you've got the ai stuff you've got the first bionic soldier stuff you've got the questions about how power in this future world is controlled by the arms dealers and and the defense industry versus the governments and and it's all just sort of mixed together in an interesting way um and at some point minor spoiler at some point a nuclear bomb goes off very close to people and that's also very exciting so uh what did what did everybody think of this fred why don't you give us uh give us a start um well, I enjoyed it a lot. I read it in about a day, sneaking it here and there. Uh, she does a good job depicting, I mean, especially that opening sequence, excellent job depicting the military in a, in a very bad situation. I really like the mix of politics and the, you know, just there's no info dumps. She drops a little bit of technology. She drops a little politics, you know, mixes it all together nicely. Um, some interesting characters, the, the relationship between the main character, his father, and his girlfriend are very interesting. You know, it's the father's proud of what he's doing, but very upset that he keeps disappearing for 10 months on end and, you know, getting body parts blown off and coming back broken. I mean, I, th- I think if you like spy novels, you'll like this one. If you like military SF, you'll like this one. If you like Bernavinge, you'll like this one. Um, she put together quite a, a nice entry in a what uh, so far two book series. We'll see how far it goes. Sean, Paul, you guys read this one? Yeah, well, Paul and I actually read it. For, well, this is another person we've interviewed, which is kind of fun. It's not as fresh in my memory as perhaps in Fred's or or Paul's. Uh, I also really like this. Um, I think largely because, like Joe Haldeman's Forever Wars, one of my favorite books ever, and it. Obviously, this book has some does some things te- with technology that are are similar and deals with some of the very aggressive um, political aspects in terms of the sort of military industrial complex stuff, uh, and that's that's something that I find really fascinating. Is it's it's when science fiction's working the best. Is it's not just sticking with the status quo. It's questioning what whatever the status quo happens to be, um, and as you, I think you noted at the very beginning, it pretty much like puts this like it just puts out all of its cards and says here you go <laughs> you know now you know what we're playing with right now um yeah the 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 defense industry you know and contractors have lots of control it starts out and you're thinking it's sort of like a rant of a character and then uh fairly soon after that you're like oh no that's the plot that's the that's the story yeah it it, it can be a little heavy-handed i think at times but it's also it 
I think it's doing something that is very current um, in the same way that Haldeman's book was very current for at least when he was writing it. It was in this sort of post-Vietnam era. In this way, it's dealing with a very different type of of war situation and different kind of industrial uh, military industrial complex. Uh, and it's obviously taking a very sort of extrapolated view of it. Um, and I find that I just find that really fascinating. And I like when science fiction and military SF in particular is actually trying to deal with real world issues in a slightly future science fiction setting instead of just sort of taking us five billion years in the future and we're just fighting aliens with no faces and stuff, um, which can be fun, but maybe not as relevant to today. Mm. <laughs> so uh, in that sense, I really appreciated it. What about you, Paul? Yeah, I, as Sean said, we, we, we read this early last year. I've, I've been reading Linda's stuff for a long time, and she had dropped out of the SF field for a while. She did a couple fantasy novels, and I was very glad when she came back to like, oh, she, she's going to self-publish a book. I, so I delved into it. I was kind of predisposed to like it on those bases. So I was like, okay, military SF, okay, politics, and then AI. It's like, okay, now I start to see where where – the Linda the God that I had read back in the 90s was was coming because because I was starting me was like this doesn't feel like her, feels like her writing but it isn't and then when when she when the strands all finally started mixing together I started to see okay now this feels like a Linda the God book and I was very very happy to have another Linda the God book if that makes any sense because she is an underrated hmm. underrated writer and I'm glad to see that she's uh, back out there publishing in and getting new readers. And she's been nominated for this award before, has she not? Yeah, long, long time ago, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't read anything by her, so I thought it was interesting. Scott, what did you think of this one? I also had never read anything by her, nor had I ever heard of her. Uh, so I, I uh, that was good. I, I'm glad I read this book because I liked it. I have a, a I don't read a lot of military science fiction, uh, but I do have a soft spot for military science fiction. So I thought uh, I enjoyed it. I liked the twists. Uh, like everyone said, it's kind of a... Uh, very, it feels very contemporary. She's trying to make a point. I like novels that have a point of view, and this certainly has a very strong point of view. <laughs> uh, and it's not shy about letting you know what that point of view is. Uh, and I thought, as I was reading it, I thought, okay, well, I know what I'm getting. This it starts off that first chapter is like pretty straightforward military science fiction. I was like, okay, this is cool. I know what's happening. Uh, and then she kind of swerves, and the whole AI thing happens, and uh, <laughs> nuclear bombs go off. Uh, all kinds of crazy stuff happens. But even with all this crazy stuff, she has characters that are believable, and they have relationships. Uh, and, you know, I was giving fire with fire a hard time for the female character. I feel like this book has a lot of strong female characters in it, uh, which I think is great, but it's not... It doesn't make it... It's not like uh, trumpeting the fact that, hey, look, there are strong female characters. They're just, they're just characters in the book. And they have things to do, and that's great. I, I like the um, – talking about the emergent AI thing. Um, I really I, – I like the fact that um, so many depictions of AI in science fiction are – and you know, and then it became alive, and it began to talk to us, and all that. And this, this seems, uh, you know, I don't know, 
more likely a scenario to me, which is that there is something that is emergent that has behavior that, you know, it's coming from somewhere and it's not natural, but it's actually unclear how intelligent it even is if it thinks or if it's just pushing reality and, and, and uh, in ways that its programming is pushing it to, you know, you, you can't... It, you, you can't see the shape of it. It's just beneath the surface, and you don't know whether it's really thinking or not. And at first, people don't even understand that it's there, and it takes a long time. The main character, you know, it's easier for people to think that he's got visions from God than it is that he's been, you know, given information or be, is being manipulated by an artificial intelligence. Um, and uh, so that's a really interesting twist i loved the the beginning in in africa i thought that that was a really evocative segment i was sort of sad when it ended but i i I see why you know that wasn't the story she wanted to tell she told that as almost like a little short story and then kicked us into the rest of the story which was which was really nice if i have a complaint about this it's probably that i felt like it went a little too long and after after you blow up a nuclear bomb um, high above, not that high above many of your characters. Um, I feel like that's probably as good as it's going to get. And I felt it kind of went on a little bit long after that. That there was a lot of of uh, there there was some more action and and there's an airplane chase at one point. And I felt like the most climactic things had already happened, and that um, I was kind of ready for it to be over. So I guess that would be my one complaint about it is there's a whole thing where there's somebody taken hostage and there's people on one airplane and people on a different airplane. And, you know, at that point, I, I felt like uh, I'd, I'd, I'd had my fill and that it, it didn't need to keep going on. But but no, it was a lot of fun. It was not what I expected from um, reading the, from the cover and from assuming that it was a military. And that at no point did any of the characters devolve into what they could. I mean you know i went to i i became a soldier instead of going to prison or the father who's protesting about his son's life choices or the girlfriend who breaks up with him because he's going in the military all of those seem like they could be stock characters and none of them are behave in in totally you know predictable stock ways which is nice it's also the first time a self-published novel has appeared on this i think yeah i think so yeah which is really interesting when you think about it cuz that's like we had a big conversation, I think last year, about I think like Hugh Howey or somebody have a fit because they didn't get nominated for, like the the proper awards, um, because they're self published or some I don't remember who it was. It probably wasn't Hugh Howey, uh, but then of course now here we are in 2014. It's like well, self published novel got nominated. So well, it, it, she may have made it easier to nominate since she's already been known for yeah you know, a number of years. She seems to be approaching this. I mean. It's not like, hi, I'm Linda and I have a book. She's got uh, – the way she seems to be approaching it is I am my own publisher and I am publishing these novels. And my, you know, I've got a publishing company with a name and, and is trying to sort of self-publish with the trappings of being in a, you know, in a publishing house even though she's not, which is an interesting approach I think. All right. Um, let's then, then – unless there's anything else about that. We'll move on to A Stranger in a Laundria by Sophia Samatar. This is going to be interesting. Uh, why do, I, 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 somebody else might want to... Scott, can you help me out here? Can you explain what this book is about? Um, well... Do you remember it? 
I do remember All it. Right. I remember parts of it. It's the story of a young man whose father grows peppers. <laughs> I'm remembering correctly. Yes. He, t- he takes a trip. He meets some interesting people. He learns how to write and read. Yes. Um, he's he's then, instructed by a, a, a traveler from the far-off big city. That's true. And, and learns how to read and write and speak the language of the far-off city, right? He travels to that city. Uh, he's he's haunted by a ghost. <laughs> See, and then, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, the uh, ghost. Apparently. Uh, he is kidnapped by some religious people put into an asylum of some sort. He is uh, then kind of kidnapped by another group of people who escape, help him escape from the asylum. There's a scene where a religious group holds a fair and everyone gets beat up. Uh, and then he hides out. While trying to a, cure himself from his haunting. Trying, yes. At the end of the, he goes out. to the end of the world and hides out. He, yes. And writes a book in the margins of another book while someone else is dying. But they're not dying because the ghost helps him keep them alive. And then when he finishes writing the book, the ghost goes away, everybody's happy, and he goes home. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of. Is that... Is that uh, sure. Yeah, I, I think, wow, you really did remember this book. <laughs> and I thought it went on so long <laughs> for such a short book. <laughs> it Was it short? I read it on the Kindle. It didn't seem short to me at all. It seemed very, 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 very long. I was reading it, and I could think, this, this is... Good, but perplexing. I don't know why I'm reading this. <laughs> I don't really care about anything that's happening. <laughs> and I hope it will stop soon. <laughs> it, you know, it... it, It's... Uh, it's kind of a shaggy dog story, right? There's lots of stories, right? I mean, that that was the thing that stopped me, actually, because I enjoyed a lot of it. But, but you know, you get to a point where you're like... Okay, now I'm going to tell you, and literally the whole thing, we're going to stop the entire book now and tell like a whole other book's worth of a story to get around. It's like, now let's back up and tell the ghost story. Or or excerpts <laughs> from books or excerpts from poems. Yeah, and that was, that was I, it, it beat me down after a while, that as much as I appreciated the quality of the writing and I was sort of interested in what was happening, there are so many excerpts from books and there's so many other people's stories and there's so many legends. Do you know the legend of this? Well, let me tell you the entire legend of that. And that, that was what stretched it out for me. I, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah. What, what do, uh, what do other people who are not me and Scott think about this before I go on too long about it? I'll come uh, back it, to it. it. The, the writing is almost painfully beautiful. It, it does have that structure of, Let's drill down into the story. Come back up again. Drill down. It it reminded it reminded me. I I think Fred will get the reference. It reminded me of a of a bit in uh, in Goldell Escobar where they where they explore stories where you drill down and come back up again and a very almost a very pit and mountain sort of structure to the book and that did make it. It's not a long book, but it feels feels like very it, long. It, 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 I tedious is not the right word because I wasn't. Board. It just, it just, it just. I had to take my time reading this and understanding it, and actually immersing myself into it. And I couldn't read a lot of it at at once because it was, it was, it was like, it was like a very rich rum cake, and I could only have little bits at a time, and then I had to put it off because yep. it was just, just too much to digest at one time. As I was thinking about it, like, oh, that was nice. Okay, I can read some more now. But I just could not take. I couldn't. I couldn't gulp this down like some of the other 
other uh, books and books in uh, this list. This had this I had to really really work at to actually get through. Um, was it worth it? I think there are readers who should never go anywhere near this book because they will hate <laughs> they will hate it to death. Right. So I'm not sure if I can recommend this or not. There, are, there's def, this is definitely a book that will definitely be divisive. I think. Yeah, I would. I would agree that it. it this is this is going to be a book for a very particular kind of reader, uh, and somebody who, maybe maybe a reader who who doesn't know what kind of book they like, which that you might want to throw it at them and see what happens to their face. Um, <laughs> I actually really enjoyed it, um, and and I actually talked to Sophia Samatar about the book before I had read it earlier this year, um, and that's partly why I bought the book immediately and then had her sign it, not realizing she'd already signed it because I was just excited. So she personalized the signature, which was kind of cool, but it was just a weird experience. Um, but I, I I liked it, and I think the reference I was actually going to go to was uh, it seemed very much like a Salman Rushdie book. Wow. In some of its uses of other narratives, uh, that would, and I feel like that may have, considering her academic experience and her research into Arabic literature, there there is a connection into that tradition that maybe we're not getting, and I'm I'm not getting it because I'm not uh, that's not my field, and I don't I don't study that particular literature. But the Rushdie would be the person that I would I would make the biggest connection to with the way in which it goes in and outside of the story, going down and then going back up. In this kind of um, hill-like structure in terms of the narrative, um, and I also feel like it. I, I agree that it can be super frustrating for a, a reader who maybe is, you know, more attuned with a kind of popular commercial type of writing. Mm-hmm. But for somebody who's looking for a challenging read, uh, this is definitely the kind of book that you'll want because it's it is it's not a simplistic read. It's not just an adventure story. Um, not that there's anything wrong with those, but like for me, like there's two reasons I read. I'm either looking just to be entertained, or I'm looking to be intellectually stimulated. Sometimes I'll get both, which is cool. But uh, this one it falls into that second category. It's it's a book that's going to stimulate me, and it is written very beautifully. Uh, it does just really cool things with narrative in terms of just like, it. There's no like straight narrative form here. It's not, you know, there's not a, a normal climax. Um, you know, the, it doesn't go from A to the, the rising action and all these kinds of sort of traditional structure. It breaks it apart, gives us all these different pieces mm-hmm. to the world, um, and it's incredibly detailed. So in that sense, I think it's it's quite beautiful, um, and it's very much a small beer press kind of book. Uh, if you're a fan of small beer press, you're probably going to love this one. And storytelling is definitely at the heart of it. I mean, the, the whole point, the ghost's entire thing is you will write a book about me. You will write a book about me, right? It's, it's <laughs> a, a story yeah. that needs to be told. This story needs to be told. And this is a uh, an illiterate kid who learns literacy and learns about the literature of this country and then visits the country. I mean, that is all part of what's going on here. And if I was writing a, you know, a 10-page essay uh, in a literature class in college about any of the books on this list, I'd probably pick this one because it is rich and there's a lot going on here. Um, Fred, do you, did you read this one? Yes, I did. Thoughts? I mean, it, well, if, if Gaiman was very uh, economical and Chuck Gannon is um, very old school, this is, I mean, I, I thought of this as being more like a, an homage to great literature I mean, there's one section that I think like before the fifth chapter that I'm like saying, is she quoting uh, Gulliver's Travels here? <laughs> because all of a sudden I'm like, ah. I've, I've read this. I've read this somewhere. 
Yeah, I was going back and forth between Gulliver's Travels and like Candide or something. I kept thinking of books like that. Yeah. Overall, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed it, but it, it felt very rich for the length. If it had been slightly shorter, I could have digested it better. I mean, I, I loved the writing, but I felt like I had eaten a 10-course meal mm. by the end of the book. Yeah. That, that moment where you get to the, the girl's story – um, which uh, on one level you've been leading up to it the whole the whole way, but I, I that it kind of lost me there because I felt like we were I was so many levels of nested parentheses into this book at that point that I just I couldn't bear to go down another level, and and um and that was happening at at a time when actually the main narrative was in its most well I mean there are lots of really interesting things in this but I loved how evocative the broken down abandoned castle on the edge of the known world where there's it's it's cold and there's nothing but a cold dry desert and like a, an old lady living in a cave <laughs> at, at, you know several miles away i i loved that feeling that he's got his friend who may be dying and they don't have anything to eat and they're in this opulent but decrepit hunting lodge castle and breaking up the furniture to stay warm <laughs> that's so i mean so beautiful and evocative and interesting and in the midst of all that they're sort of like okay let me tell you a story <laughs> and it's back to one of the islands and this girl who we met who's now the ghost that's haunting him and i don't know something about that i i just i got i got frustrated as a as a reader that was like I didn't feel like I was being challenged by her narrative at that point. I felt like I was being I don't know whether it was being taken advantage of or just yeah, I was being frustrated. By that point, <laughs> you're you're you've been educated into the style of writing that she just takes a step back and tells a straightforward tale. All right, I I've hit you with all the legends, I've hit you with all the myths. Now, here we go. Here's something just as good, just as shocking. This, you know, what happens to this one person? And not to be not to be too cynical about it, but there were there are a few stories in there that I read, and I thought this is this is self indulgent. This is I've got some interesting world building and takes on some of these sort of legends, and I'm going to drop them all and show you all my notes. And I swear, Goodreads tells me this is 300 pages long. I, if you had asked me, I would have said it was like 500 pages long. This is where the Kindle, I guess, is a disadvantage because it felt like that. It felt like. You know, just and, and again, I enjoyed some of them, but then they kept coming, and I, I ended up feeling kind of beaten up by the number of digressions, and um, and they weren't, you know, in the end, a lot of them weren't that impressive to me. It was more like, oh, okay, yep, tell me, tell me the backstory of this thing. It's like a short story in which every sentence contains a a, a footnote containing another longer story explaining all the background of that sentence. It was a little bit like that after a while. I was just like, ah, it's, you know, and it was, you know, and maybe that is, that's my failing as a reader, but as a reader, I felt like it was, it was, it was too much. Like I really got into it for a while and then I sort of soured on it a little bit because, because, you know, it, it is certainly intelligent and well-written and challenging and interesting. All of those things are true. It just, it, it, it became frustrating to me toward the end but there are there are things in this that uh, images in this book that i will never forget because they are so beautiful and evocative and interesting the crazy we didn't even mention the um running of the bulls style religious festival that happens in the city where he ends he ends up like naked in a i mean it's it's a it's a long night for the main (laughs) character but it's so you know beautiful and interesting and how he tells the story it's crazy also a first novel wow Wow. So amazing. 
Yeah, it's actually really impressive. Like the the number of first novels um, that are also really really impressive in and of themselves based on what they're trying to do. Um, so I mean this and 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 like and Lucky's book, uh, you know, they're very different types of books, but they're each incredibly ambitious. I feel, which gives them a, like a brownie point. I think. Yeah. Yeah, you can't can't have the excuse of well, you know, it's only my first novel. It's like well. I've got some examples of other great first novels. Um, is The Golem and the Genie Helene Wecker's first novel, too? Yes, yes. it is. Yep. Look at that. Dun, dun. Ding, ding, ding. Amazing. Which yeah, one? another really interesting book. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this one is what? Late, it's it's 19th century New York? Yeah, 1890s-ish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah late 19th century New York. Uh, it's a story of immigrants in this case, in addition to the Jewish immigrants and the, the, uh, uh, they're not, they're actually Christians, but from, from, uh, from Syria. So we, we would think of this as a, as a Middle Eastern uh, group of people, but they're actually, uh, mostly Christians that are in the story. Um, they are all, they, they come to the new, to the new world seeking, uh, a, a new life and, and, and they are in New York city. Um, but the, a golem and a genie also <laughs> are immigrants to New York City, and uh, and through a series of interesting events, then the way the genie gets put in his not a bottle but a a lamp is a uh, is told in flashback. The golem story is told more straightforwardly in the narrative, and um, you know, boy, when these two get together. It's going to be interesting. Sparks flying, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and they're surrounded by all sorts of characters. And there's a there's a a character who creates the golem at the beginning, who you think you're not going to see again, but boy, you see him again. And uh, and uh, anyway, that's what this book is about. Uh, uh, there's a golem, and there's a genie. Suffice it to say, uh, Scott, you told me that at one point that this was your favorite book that you had read this year. Uh, it continues to be the fav- my favorite book that I've read this year. Uh, I don't. I just well, a uh, I have a well known bias towards books set in the 19th century in New York City. Yes, this is uh, true. So this hits those marks. There's no detective, sadly. If there were a detective, this may be my favorite book ever. <laughs> but there's no detective, so sad. I'm sorry. Golem and Genie Detective Agency, new book. Can I pre-order that now? Because <laughs> I'll take two copies. Um, I I really enjoyed this book. I mean, I still there are scenes in the book that I still think about every once in a while. Uh, like the so the genie is set free by a tinsmith, and then so basically the tinsmith who is you know he's a serviceable tinsmith, uh, but he doesn't have the power to melt metal with his hands. Um, as, you know, generally people don't. Uh, so the genie basically says, well, I have nothing better to do, so I'll help you <laughs> with your tin smithery. It uh, starts repairing pots and pans and things and, and kind of doesn't really like it. And then they get a job to make this um, ceiling piece for an apartment. Uh, and so the genie goes crazy and makes this beautiful map uh, of, of, you know, with... Of the of desert. Basically of the desert where, where he, he lived. lived, where his secret uh, invisible palace is. 
uh, and it's a beautiful piece of artwork and everyone loves it, uh, except for the guy who owns the apartment building because he's like, I'm not paying for this. You, you've used all this tin and this is like a, a you know, a slumlord that I, uh, this is a slum. Why is this beautiful piece of art here? And, you know, but anyway, I still think about uh, the description of that, that tin piece every once in a while. Yeah, uh, people just... walk into the apartment and they look up and all of a sudden snaps into relief and they're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So I mean, I just, I just really liked it. Yeah, it reminded me of since we're we're listing things that these books remind us of. I, I it reminded me a little bit of um, Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. Um, mm-hmm. it, just in the sense that it was it's it's immigrant stories in New York. It's sort of supernaturalish, um, but you know, in, in the end, it's this uh, story of of immigrants of people coming to a new world and being out sort of in a culture that's inside a different culture and mixed with these other cultures and how how they all interact in a kind of a big it's a big mess and they all interact and and push against one another in 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 manhattan and uh this had that same feeling i i love the fact that the you know that the golem and the genie both are are immigrants as well kind of against their will but they're immigrants as well uh what did uh, anybody else who read this what did Want to talk about it a little bit? Uh, well, I, I uh, this is one of the ones that I they worked on today, so I'm not quite finished with it. But it is, um, it is a book that I wish I had read earlier because as soon as I started reading it, I knew it was going to be dealing with stuff that I would be interested in. <laughs> uh, because it's it, and not because it's dealing with like it's got a golem, which is like the opening chapter is really fascinating when the the golem is sort of created, and then in the immediate stuff that follows after that's really interesting. But I also really love that this was a book that was dealing with the immigration issue at a time period that's, you know, well before I was born um, and before anyone on this podcast was born unless somebody here is a vampire. Uh, because it it's interesting to see, you know, the the Ellis Island stuff being dealt with in, in a what is clearly a, a fantasy novel uh, being dealt with very explicitly. There's a really great chapter in here where uh, I forget which character it is. Uh, where he's sitting there and it just briefly says that like Ellis Island guy says, you know, well, your name is weird and we should just make it American. And then they change his name to like, you know, that's when the dark rabbi comes over. Right. They just they change his name because his name's too hard for them. Yeah. But that actually happened. And it's like this really fascinating like moment in this book where we're getting this very real experience. But it's mediated through what is going to be a very fantastic element of the novel. Um, and I love that it deals with that, and obviously it's dealing with it with, in terms of the the golem and the the genie uh, in their own different different ways, and their sort of attempts to kind of, I get, you could almost say they're like allegories for sort of the immigrant experience, mm-hmm. um, but they also operate on their own because there are other immigrants that are actually trying to integrate into an you know 19th century american culture well they both have their friends that are that are also part of the immigrant experience right whether it's the tinsmith and the and the people in that neighborhood or it's the uh the the rabbi and his son and the uh, and the people at the bakery bakery people yeah 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 or nephew right right yeah yeah right yeah uh yeah it's it's just fascinating i think as a as a book it deals with some really really heady subjects um but does it in a really beautiful way um, even the relationship with the, between the golem and the genie is just a really kind of beautiful thing. There's some brilliant chapters where they're sort of interacting. I think there's one moment when the the golem and the genie acknowledge that they they don't actually get along very well, but that it's more interesting to them that they have these arguments than if they just sort of dealt with what would be normal everyday happy conversations. Um, and I love that moment when they have that that 
where they realize like yeah we have like a tumultuous relationship but it's actually kind of good he coaxes her out to uh the, the genie coaxes the golem out to go for a walk basically and they walk the streets of you know 1890s new york uh in the dark in the middle of the night and that's I, I love I love all of that too the imagery of them doing that. And ne- neither neither of them sleep, so you know they've got a lot of free time, and, and neither yeah. of them are going to be mugged. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. So I, I liked I really liked that 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 the the images of that, and then there's a pivotal scene that happens in the park at a fountain, and. Uh, you know, and there's some interesting things with uh, the genie before he meets the golem, where he meets a young lady of uh, of means in the city, and and uh, and uh, how he interacts with her, and uh, and boy, does he interact with her. Anyway, um, and she has a little uh, fire baby later. Anyway, um, <laughs> as as you do. <laughs> well, if you're gonna play around with a genie, that might happen. True. He's just a he's a fire elemental. Um, yeah, I, I I I like this I like this book so much. <laughs> I gotta say, it, I just it, it is, um, you know, the two characters are very interesting. The supporting cast around them are interesting. Then they meet and their relationships are great. Quite honestly, if there hadn't been the plot motivation of the you know essentially the creator of the genie uh, comes back and 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 discovers that. You know, he's a very, very bad man. He discovers that she's there and he's trying to unlock secrets. And it turns out that, you know, his story is much more complicated than we're led to believe. And that's all fine. It makes it makes for some jeopardy and it makes the plot move at the end. Um, if it didn't exist <laughs> in the book, I would not like it any less, I think. If there was the not the bad guy who's going around trying to I mean, just the tr- the life of the people like like her, um, her friend from the bakery who's being mm. misled by a, a gentleman who she thinks is going to marry her, but in fact, he's a cad um, stuff like that was <laughs> I, I like and how a golem reacts to that. I thought was perfectly interesting. I actually, you know, and I, I like the fact that the golem. So the whole point of the golem is that she can senses other people's desires and wants to fulfill them. Um, and so she's working in this bakery, and she can sense, you know, that you come in and you're frazzled and you want, you know, uh, rye bread, seedless rye bread. So she knows that already, and she has it ready, but she can't do that because she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to just give it to you because she can't expose that she's not a real person. So she has to wait for you to ask. And she also has to start making mistakes because as she's working at the bakery, making, you know, rolls and things, every single roll looks exactly the same, and she's doing things like four times faster than everyone else. So then she realizes... Uh oh! I better start making some mistakes and slowing down because people are going to figure out something's up. But she can't resist doing things like if she knows that somebody's coming in and they're sad and they would be happy if they had a cinnamon roll. Recommend? Oh, are you down? Like, Maybe you should have a cinnamon roll. Just finding ways to interact with humans and not expose herself. I mean, this might be my favorite book of the year so far as oh. well. Not not just for the main characters, but two of the secondary characters really moved me. Um, first off. The, the good rabbi, if we want to go. Yes. You know, bad rabbi. <laughs> yes. Especially, you know, he's just trying so hard to set a good example and teach her and get her ready to be independent because he knows, you know, he's got a limited amount of time. Yeah. And his relationship with his nephew was wonderful. And uh, the other thing that really moved me was um, the, the woman of means, you know, her her attempt to figure out what's going on with her and then what happens 
in Paris, especially that little uh, poignant scene where the uh, fire baby um, departs. <laughs> you know, especially you know, not to get too personal, but as a as a parent who lost a child, that was very moving to me. So, yeah. Yeah, it was, and again, like I said about uh, some of the other books here, characters that didn't have to be that rich, you know, and it would have been easy for a writer to be like, well, you know, central casting, it's a rabbi, he's helpful, but move on with the story. Or or this is a woman that the genie seduces and we'll move on with the story. And uh, boy, nobody gets short shrift like that. The, these characters are all... Um, they get their they get their moments and they are they go beyond what is required sort of just to move the story along. Um, you get a lot more detail about them. And in fact, the 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 girl, you know, the woman who who um, who the genie has his uh, affair with, his fling with, his his fire baby makings with, um, you know, she comes back around and is important uh, as the story goes along too. So it, it's uh, it's really you know. It's really nicely done, and it's not the kind of book that I would, I would, that would leap off the shelf as as a somebody who's not an aficionado for nineteenth century New York detective stories like Scott. <laughs> so foolish. Um, I this one didn't jump out at me, and uh, yet, um, boy, it's really good. It's just it's it's fun, and the characters are good, and the the it, there are unexpected things that happen, and you know it, it's yeah it's. I, I don't know what more to say. It, it's it's surprising and and it's just good all the way through. So, good job, Helene Wecker. Another first novel, Bravo. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the incomparable's very own Scott McNulty, as he branches out onto his new podcast, Random Trek, from the people who brought you the incomparable, mostly Scott. Although I'm on the first episode. Random Trek is a podcast where we watch a randomly selected episode of Star Trek. Scott and a guest. Check it out. It's brand new. We just started at theincomparable.com slash random trek. That's theincomparable.com slash random trek. So that's, that's eight books. We have now talked about eight books. Um, Scott talked about one of them himself, <laughs> which was good. That's fine. And that was thank good. Thank you, Scott. Somebody, yes, You're thank welcome. you for doing. Somebody that. had to read it. <laughs> Somebody had to read it. Um, I, I want to go around uh, before we go and uh, sort of ask you of the of the books here that you've read. What would be your favorite one if you had to pick, or favorite one? You know, if you can't pick, then you can. You can wimp out and say I like these two or three, but if you can, um, if you had a vote for the Nebula, uh, what would be your what would be your vote, Fred? What do you think? Well, it would have gone with the Golem and the Genie for me. All right. Uh, no, no, hands down, that was the the top choice for me. All right, Paul. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Ancillary Justice. Ancillary Justice. People like you are giving that book lots of awards. <laughs> so you're I, I, I guess so. <laughs> Sean? Oh, this is not fair. Yeah, I know. Why would you do this to me? I know. I'm doing it to myself, too. I don't know what I'm even going to say next. Fuck up, so. Sean. <laughs> oh, man. It is... No. Are you torn between a few? I'm torn between three. Yeah? Because uh, I Ancillary Justice, Stranger in Alondria, and The Golem and The Genie are all... Huh. I think really incredible novels. 
for very different reasons. Uh, I don't know. I, I maybe I'd lean a little bit more towards the latter two, um, just in terms of the out of the gate quality, because I think ancillary justice is in some cases a little uneven. But I understand why it got picked, because mm-hmm. it makes total sense. Like it's an ambitious freaking novel. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, let's just say the Gollum and the Genie. All right. Um, but like, it's like one one billionth of a percentage point <laughs> above. So you know, I could I could read the others again, and then it could swing the other way. Sure. That way, I don't feel bad about myself later. I am I am torn between the Gollum and the Genie. Ancillary Justice and The Ocean at the End of the Lane, actually. Those three. And, and uh, you know, and I think we are all completely beside ourselves would be up there um, with it for me, other than the fact, like I said, I'm going to disqualify it only because it's not really science fiction. But I liked, I loved it too. But those uh, the other three, I have a hard time with picking among all of them. And, you know, if you ask me today, I might go back uh, to the one that I read the longest time ago, which is the ocean at the end of the lane. I, I, you know, it's, I think it's easy to, uh, we, we talk about two first novels and Neil Gaiman, right? And it's easy to just be like, look, it's Neil Gaiman. He's fine. He doesn't need to win any more awards. Everybody knows who he is. And that's true, but boy, that's a really, really good book. I really enjoyed it. But at the same time, you know, Ancillary Justice is is a, a a really good example of a science a modern science fiction novel, um, and uh, you know it's a good book, but it also is a very much a science fiction novel in the tradition of the genre. Um, so you know, at the end of the day, I would I, I would have to flip a coin between Neil Gaiman and uh, and Helene Wecker's Gollum and the Genie. I, it just depend on how I was feeling that day, and it would be tough for me too because all three of those books are are really good, and that's it's nice to have such good books on a list. Especially, I got to say, um, this was a pretty good list. Scott and I have read the Hugo nominees the last few years, and that has not always been a pleasant experience. Some of those no. books are not books we liked at all and i had no experience like that with these books no i liked all of these books yeah yeah these these books all have things to record even stranger in a laundry which i did not love because of the reasons i i enumerated um i can't i can't deny it being well written and i see why people would really like it because it is a it is a very carefully constructed high quality well-written book even though i didn't love it um Mm -hmm. and that that's yeah that's a pretty good crop yeah, imagine if we had to actually vote on this in the Hugo Award. Yeah. I mean, that would be like there'd be people biting each other. It'd just be a very terrifying experience. Well, all those all those good things I said about uh, you know, and and that we all said about the Red First Light um, of the seven books I'd read, I'd probably read it. I'd probably rank it seventh, and <laughs> it's a good book. It's not a bad book at all. And then there's Hilt, which I didn't read, so who knows? It's a question mark where it would go. Good job, Nebula. Uh, wait, wait, whoever, Scott, who, did, Scott did answer the question. Oh, Scott. Oh, yeah. Jason doesn't care about my opinion. <laughs> I do because, Scott, this is the big question is, Ancillary Justice was your favorite book of last year and The Golem and the Genie is your favorite book so far this year. You must choose. I must choose. Well, I think if I were – it depends on how I was going to vote, uh, like if the construct I put around my voting. If I was going to vote for the book that I think would win – Although now I know which one would win. I would vote for Ansler Justice because I think... Good pick. It did win. It is amazing. <laughs> Just because of what we, what everyone has said before. It's kind of like it's a bold, kind of ambitious science fiction, meaty science fiction book. 
that is just like, yes, you should give this book a science fiction award. It deserves an award with a spaceship on it. Basically. It does, exactly. A trophy with a spaceship, yeah. Whereas I love The Golem and the Genie, so if I were just voting for the book that I like the most, I would pick The Golem and the Genie, but it feels weird to give that book a science fiction award, even though I know this is science fiction and fantasy, uh, when Ancillary Justice is in the mix. Uh, I wouldn't be outraged if any of these books had won. I would have questioned maybe Fire with Fire, but uh, I still liked Fire with Fire. So if any of them won, I think would have been a fine pick. Uh, whereas, as you said, past Hugo nominees, I would have been outraged if certain <laughs> books won. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Golem, and, Golem and the Genie is the one that you would probably pick if you had to pick. If I was voting with my heart. All right. I'm All right. outnumbered. Well, yeah, but not, but it's like by the thinnest of margins, right? I mean, oh, right. everybody I mean, agrees how how good ancillary justice is, too. And maybe if I had read the Golem and the Genie, I would I would make I would make this unanimous, perhaps. It's possible. We'll find out. Yeah, yeah. Give, Paul, give Paul, Paul, say something really cool about ancillary justice, real quick. Like one little thing. The 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 incredible use of language and pronouns and genders and explore, exploring exploring that. In, in a science fiction space opera setting in a way that few authors dare to do these days. Okay, Ancillary Justice gets my vote again. <laughs> I, I, w- I was going to pile on and say Ancillary Justice, I, I think, you know, we, we said this on the, our podcast we did about it. I, I think it gets kind of overpraised for the gender issues. They're there, but I, I feel like uh, what I said at the time was I don't feel like that that's a book about gender so much as it's a book about identity. And and so although the gender thing is really interesting, um, what I think is fantastic is that it's about identity on a broad scale. Like literally, if you're a spaceship with hundreds of ancillaries, who are you? And then if you're collapsed down into one, who are you? If you're a, an emperor who can sp- make duplicates of yourself and now there are you forked yourself into different bodies, who who's the real you? Is there one? Who are you? I mean, there's so many different, you know, gender is one part of identity or perhaps the books arguing not an, as important a part of the identity. Um, but, but that's what this book is about. It's like, who are, who are you? What is identity? And I mean, talk about ambitious first novel, broad sci-fi canvas and this topic of identity at the core of it. Just like I, amazing. She has written a few uh, stories before, one of which was Nebula Nobulated, as I recall. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is not her first rodeo, but this is her first long rodeo. And it's a and it's and it's ambitious and she she nailed it. So, you know, there's no shame in in voting for ancillary justice. I think we'd all give a fraction of our vote to it if we could, right? Just split it. And it's imaginary, so let's say we did. <laughs> Hooray. <laughs> and just remember the Hugos have a preferential voting system. So, yeah. Now, well, when I wrote down my choices here, I did actually write numbers next to them, figuring it's <laughs> like like the Hugos. I didn't write down no award though. Uh, because I'm, you know, they're all good. That's Mira good. Grant wasn't nominated. We, 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 yeah, there was no Mira Grant, so we didn't have to do that, Scott. <laughs> anyway, um, I've got Parasite on my bedside uh, uh, nightstand. Uh, re- checked out from the library because it was not made available in the Hugo packet, so I just checked it out from the library. And uh, I'm reading Parasite right now. I'll be dipping into that because you got to read all the Hugo nominees, too. That's another podcast. You guys, I, it was really fun to bring in uh, bring in the ringers, the science fiction ringers from many other podcasts, who, and and uh, get more uh, uh, voices to read these uh, all these these many 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 books. 
um, it was a lot of fun to talk about books for for an hour it, and a half it, with you guys. It was it was a pleasure. We did snatch one of your incomparable people for one of our podcast our podcasts. So I guess we were returning the favor. It was that Erica. Yeah, yeah. I, te- I I think technically she's she is Verity's, and we we yeah, already. But she's on here a lot. Yeah, though. we we well we're trying to you know we're we're. She's on an extended loan to us, I guess. But <laughs> but it's it's nice. I like I like the uh, mixing of all the people all over the place. Uh, it's it's I think it's really cool to have people, and that's one of the reasons I wanted you guys on is is it's a uh, kind of fun to let uh, people who listen to this show hear you guys, and then you know they can they can follow you back to these many other podcasts that that you're on. And and uh, uh, again, I have to point out the Hugo nominated Skiffy and Fanti and the Hugo nominated SF Signal. So mm-hmm. not bad. Pretty nice, and the and Erica, of course, from the Hugo nominated Verity, great category. The podcast category <laughs> this year is a great uh-huh. category. Our favorite, right. and the incomparable Hugo nominated adjacent. <laughs> <laughs> the, cl- the more people we invite on who are Hugo nominees, eventually, you know, we will be as if we were nominated for that. I'm just going to clutch on to my. Uh, well, some of us did nominate you. It just well, that's very that's very kind of you. I I, I believe I'm I'm not allowed to nominate myself, so I did. Yes, but you I, can. I nominated. Oh, okay. I, I nominated. I nominated. Uh, I nominated uh, both of those podcasts: the SF Signal, the Skiffy and Fanti, and also Verity. So, who says my nominees don't get picked up? Three of them did in the podcast category. All right. So, thank you, Fred Kish. You've been here from the as a listener from the beginning. It was nice to have you on, and people can hear you, SF Signal and the Three Horsemen. Correct. That's correct. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, a pleasure to finally have you on in person. I appreciate it. Paul Weimer, many podcasts, including Skiffy and Fanti and SF Signal. Any others that you want to mention? Any other plugs you would like to do before we go? No, I, I think I did all my plugs. And Skiffy and Fanti is my major home in SF Signal. They let me on now and again. And maybe maybe I'll get on the horseman again someday if, uh, if Fred can uh, unbar the door for me. We'll see. Very nice. Very nice. And Sean Duke, Skiffy and Fanti. Really fun podcast. I've been enjoying listening. You've got a whole bunch of different episodes, too. I listened to your Babylon 5 rewatch episodes, which were fun. Um, yeah, just lot, lots of good stuff there. Um, anything else you'd like to plug? You're going to London. We just don't know what you're eating yet. Yeah, I don't know what I'm eating, but I'll be in that country somehow. Uh, I'll be arriving on boat in a crate. Nice. You'll be sleeping on the top deck of a double-decker bus. Most likely, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a good way to get around. But I, I guess I could just say my, my personal blog, which is The World in a Satin Bag, and the website is just wisb.blogspot.com. Great. And we'll put those links in the show notes, too, for people who want to check that out and uh, can't write things down when they're listening to a podcast. Because, you know, you're probably driving when you're listening to this. And don't stop to write things down because you'll crash and die. And that would be bad. Well, if you stopped and... Oh, yeah, you can stop and write it down. That's true. Just don't, well, not not like suddenly in the middle of the street. I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> Why did you stop, sir? Well, I had to write down the name of a blog. That, uh, <laughs> nah, something like that. And Scott McNulty, I'm not going to forget you. Where where can people listen to you, Scott? Uh, everywhere. Just listen to the inner voice inside of you, and that'll be you. That's me. That'll be yeah. That's right. I'll be there. When, whenever there's a man reading a science fiction novel, whenever there's a lady reading a science fiction novel, writing a first novel and getting nominated and winning an award, I'll be there. Yes, Watch out, Ed Lecky. Scott is there watching <laughs> you write your novel. Scary. That's I was right. trying to do what? What is that? Is that uh, the shadow? No, no. I'll be there. That's um, Grapes of Wrath. Is that it? 
Yeah, that's what I was going for there. Or The Shadow, Scott. Yeah, sure. For The Incomparable, um, I've been Jason Snell. Thank you for listening. I hope you found some really good book suggestions that you can read. And stay tuned. We'll be back in a month or two with a uh, a Hugo nominees podcast as well. If if everybody reads the books, I know Scott and I will read them because that's what we do. All right. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.